Good morning. Uh, it is awesome to be able to be with you and worship our Lord together. Uh, happy Labor Day. I hope you're having a good weekend and uh, being able to take, for some of you, uh, hopefully you have some time off to be able just to enjoy family, but even enjoy just worshiping the Lord and taking in kind of the beauty of this creation and all that He's done in your life. And so this is an opportunity for us to celebrate uh, just who He is and what He's done. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and it's always just a blessing to be able to open God's Word with you. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it over to the book of 1 Timothy. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, last week, we kicked off our series here in 1 Timothy, and we're going to kind of really get into the meat of the passage. Last week, Pastor Mike did an overview to the book, to the series. So if you weren't here this past week, I encourage you to go back, uh, listen to that podcast. It's going to give a lot of setup to what the book's about, who it's written to, and kind of how all the pieces fit together, timeline and all of that. And that would be really helpful as we go through it. Uh, Another thing I'd recommend too is if you've not grabbed one of these cards, you can grab them on the way out, and it's an overview and a reading plan of 1 Timothy. So as we're walking through this book over the next two months, it gives you some guided readings, some passages that you can memorize. They're just going to help you grow and grab a hold of all that's here. And so this is just a really special thing we get to do, uh, is go into God's Word and spend a lengthy time through a book of the Bible. And I'm excited to be a part of a church that values this. Uh, You can go to all kinds of churches and find messages on just topics and things that are kind of felt needs. Uh, But when you see a church that is taking the time to really dive into God's Word, and we're not the only ones to do that in this area, thankfully, uh, that's just what we're called to do. Open up God's Word and follow it and obey it. And so I'm excited to be a part of a church that does that. Uh, And if you're here and you're not a believer or you're trying to figure out if Tri-Cities is the place for you or what Christianity is all about, I think this series is going to be really helpful because we're talking about the family of faith. Uh, as you've seen from the titles and, and pictures, you're talking about what does it mean for us to be a church? How do we operate inside the church? How do we live together? How, how do we do life together? What has God called us to? How are we led? And what do we believe? And what do we follow? And all of that is found within this book of 1 Timothy. So I think it's going to be a special time for us. So I'd encourage you to read along as well. And so we're going to be in chapter 1. And uh, this morning... I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and as I pray, I'd ask you to pray for me, that God give me the words uh, to say, His word, not my word, and pray for those around you as well as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you, and we pray that you'd help us to do it with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We recognize that the only reason that we are here and the reason that we worship you is because of the work that you've done through Jesus Christ. So we ask this morning and claim to the promise that your word does not return void, that it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray that your word would do its work and fulfill its purpose in our lives this morning. Pray that there be nothing known in this place except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you would change us for your glory and for our good. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 11, and it'll be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, I'd also encourage you, you can take the one in front of you in that seat back. It's a gift that we want to give to you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, in Christ Jesus 
our hope. And so we have a hope this morning. That hope is Jesus Christ. If you walk in this morning without hope, if you walk in this morning stressed, discouraged, beat down, uh, with sickness, what, whatever it is, there is hope this morning, not in a church or in a person or in an organization, but in Jesus Christ. And Paul begins this section by saying, we have a hope, and it is in Jesus. And this book is built on that hope. To Timothy... My true child in the faith. We talked about last week how Timothy uh, came to faith through the Apostle Paul and has now become a minister, served with Paul for 15 years, their relationship built. And now he is at the church of Ephesus uh, serving on behalf of Paul while Paul's headed to uh, another church in Macedonia. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This isn't just an introduction, grace, mercy, mercy and peace. This is what Timothy will need to take on what's happening in the church that we see in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. There are men within the church who are teaching things that are outside the bounds of Scripture. There are false teachers that have come into this young church and are beginning to subvert the message. So Paul wastes no time talking to Timothy saying, you have to deal with this. You have to charge certain persons. There are specific people who are leading the church astray. Nor to devote themselves to myths, verse 4, and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. By faith being the gospel. Verse 5, this is kind of our central verse this morning. The aim of our charge the aim of our command, the aim of what God has called us to as the church and as Christians is love. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to be. Love who? Love God most. Love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love those who are far from God. The aim of our lives, the purpose of your life and my life at the end of the day is that love would pour from us through the gospel. That love issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have made shipwreck of their faith, we see later. This is what he says here. Have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Anyone in here ever know someone who thought they knew what they were talking about but didn't have any clue what they were talking about? Anybody around that person? That's what's happening. They're making confident assertions, but they don't understand even what they're trying to teach. Verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. That's really important. When he says the law, we're talking about Deuteronomy, Exodus, the law given to God's people. That it was not given for the just, but it was given for the unjust, sinners, to point us to our need for God. So the law was not given to us to earn our way to God, it was given to us to help us see our need for God, so that we could look to God for salvation. So what these false teachers are doing is they're saying, Obey the law so that God will love you. Obey the law so that you will earn favor for God. Obey the law so that you can have your sin removed. Paul's saying that's not why the law exists. It's for the disobedient, for the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, 
for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for kidnappers and liars, perjurers, and whatever else. You can throw anything else in there that's contrary to sound doctrine. There's that word again, doctrine, theology, right teaching that lines up with God's word in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. This passage is so important that Paul is writing to the church and he's writing to Timothy out of love for them. I was sharing at the earlier service, we earned a new experience in our family where we've sent uh, our oldest son, Jack, to kindergarten. And so for any of you people who are parents in the room, you've walked through this. It's a different stage of life for us, going to this big school, all these people. We're excited for him. We're nervous for him. We're trying to figure everything out and found out like car lines are of the devil and all those kind of things that you know if you're a parent, but you don't know until you get there kind of deal. And so as we're going there, we're encouraging him, but we're also trying to protect him and things are changing. And we drop him off every day and we've been walking into class with him, but it happened uh, a couple weeks ago where we were pulling up typically where we'd park and I would walk him in and Jack says hey dad today can you just drop me off and not walk in with me you know and then in the back of my mind's like why and so part of me is excited it's like yes he wants to go he wants to be independent but the other part of me is like he doesn't need me anymore like what's happening here and but I want to see him thrive I want to see him succeed if you're a parent you understand that but one of the things we've had to do with Jack is he has allergies. He's allergic to peanuts, can't be around it, can't have it, anything like that. He's also has celiac, so he can't have gluten. So we have to tell Jack while he's there, that cupcake that your friend's eating next to you, it's going to look really, really good. And it's probably going to taste really, really good. But what's going to happen to you after you have that cupcake is not going to be good at all, right? Or that peanut butter cookie, it looks good, it smells good, you taste it, it's death. Like, stay away from it. You know, we're warning, watch out, stay away. And what Paul's doing is he's writing to Timothy, he's writing to his church, he loves Timothy dearly, he loves the church dearly. And he's writing them out of love, but he's giving them warnings. Stay away from this, watch out from this, because he wants to see them succeed and thrive. And so for us this morning, we're going to look at these things that are in this passage and there's kind of three and this is kind of the big picture idea this morning God has given the faith family a charge faith family then faith family now us God has given the faith family a charge and that charge it faces threats but it's also anchored in hope and the aim of our charge is love It's the big idea. God has given the faith family then and now a charge. That charge, it faces threats, it faces dangers, but it's anchored in hope. It's anchored that there's a hope that drives it and fuels it. And the charge itself, the aim of that charge is love. And so we're just going to walk through this passage this morning, look at those three things, the threats, the charge, the hope that we've been given. And here's what I want to just say from the beginning. Uh, there's a lot more here than I can cover, and so you can download the notes online. There's a ton there that you can look at later. I just encourage you to listen, take it in now. You can get that stuff later on. Here's the second thing. Uh, if you've grown up in church world, this is going to be really easy to dismiss. Because when we talk about threats and false teachers, our first thought is, that's out there. And what I want us to do is to examine, is it in here? 
Not just here in the building, that's important. But is there anything in your heart or my heart that could be false or lead us to become false teachers? So we don't think that way. We always think outside. We don't go inside. The second thing is, as we talk about love, again, we just kind of dismiss. Oh, we know what love is. We're supposed to love. Love like that kind of... But say, push those preconceptions aside and say, am I being changed by the love of God? Is the love of God a marker in my life? Is our church, is it known for the love of God? Am I known for the love of God? How can that happen in me? So I encourage you just to think about these things, but think about how they intersect with your life, okay? So the first thing we see in this passage is the threat, our threat, the threat to this church that we're reading about here in Ephesus, but the threat to our church, and that threat is false teachers within the family of faith. The threat that they're facing and the threat that we also face is that false teachers would rise up within the family of faith. And so we see this kind of throughout the first couple verses. Paul's talking about his apostolic authority, which is a big word for saying he's an apostle and he's not afraid to use it. He's using that title because he wants these men who are leading people astray to know that he comes from the authority of Jesus Christ and what he's saying. We also see in verses 3 and 4 that they're teaching a different doctrine. They've gotten away from God's word. They've gotten away from the gospel. And they're leading people into speculations and myth. And it says genealogies, which all that means is that you trace ancestry and based upon who your great, 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 great grandfather was, that makes you more important than everybody else kind of thing. They've subverted the law and are using it for their own gain. And so there are false teachers within the church. So what I want to do is I want to point out some of the truths about false teachers. And I just want you to measure these against your own heart, your own life, things that are happening in you and around you. And this has been so convicting for me personally. So here's the first one. False teachers um, rise from among us. False teachers arise from among us. It's really easy to spot on TV or the books or all that kind of stuff, the false teachers out in society or out in the world. But what we see happening here is these false teachers are coming from within the church. And so we have to be careful. Is there anyone, is there anything within Tri-Cities Baptist Church that could take and point away from the gospel? That's why there are leaders and and God puts elders and pastors in, in place to help protect the church. But you as a church member have a responsibility to measure what's said against God's word. I have that responsibility. But we also have to look within ourselves because most of these men probably didn't come into the church from outside the church saying, I'm a false teacher, I'm going to lead the church astray. There were people like us, a part of a young church with a young pastor who began to get outside of God's word and started trying to leverage the church for their own gain, their own good. And there's a temptation within all of our hearts instead of to be a part of a church, to use the church for our own gain. It's within all of us. And so false teachers rise from within the church. We have to examine ourselves. And just to give further weight to this, Hebrews 3, 12-13 says this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any among you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But encourage or exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a war for our hearts, and we have to take care. We have to examine ourselves. That's part of why we do the Lord's Supper. It's a time to examine our hearts and our minds. Is there any sin? Is there any false testimony within us? Here's another truth. False teachers focus on speculation instead of divine inspiration. They focus on speculation instead of divine inspiration. They make up their own truths about God's Word that sound like godliness, that sound good, but they don't line up with Scripture. Verse 3, I charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, any different teaching. It's outside the bounds of Scripture. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, there's our word, rather than the stewardship from God that aligns with faith. What is faith? The gospel. Here's where we get into error. False teachers, what happens is they start or they stop using God's word. They manipulate God's word for their own gain. They start teaching things that are outside of Scripture. That's why for us as a faith family, we emphasize so much God's Word and the teaching of God's Word and to be studying God's Word and be in a study group and be in a life group where you can be held accountable because God's Word is life and when we get outside of it, we are headed into danger. And so what happens is false teachers, they begin to lean into speculation and personal, um, you know, God told me this and I saw that and this happened instead of focusing in on God's word. And that's a danger for us. God's word is true and God's word is breathed out by God and Jesus affirms God's word and there's tons of scripture you can find in your notes that talk about that. Here's the second truth. False teaching is always self-centered instead of love-centered. It's always self-centered instead of love-centered. And so these men, instead of loving God most and loving other people more, they were focused on themselves. So when we get away from God's word, we focus on ourselves and we begin to live for us instead of for the glory of God. And it's the danger of all our hearts. It's what sin does to us. It takes the focus off of God. It puts us on us. And we use people and we use the church and we use our family and we use our jobs to advance and lift up ourselves instead of the one that we were created for. That was happening. He says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, from a good conscience, a sincere faith. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered, and that word wandered literally means to miss the mark. So if the aim of the target is love, they have missed the mark of love, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they know. Here's another truth. False teachers pursue self-advancement over kingdom advancement along the same lines, trying to advance self instead of advance the kingdom. First Timothy 6, later on, Paul says this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. This is what happens with false teachers. They don't worship and love, don't exude from them. These other things do. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. They're trying to use God's word to gain 
for their own selfish gain. It's what's happening in the church. And so the pitfall is we get away from God's word. And we begin to believe things that aren't true, that are outside the bounds of God's word. That leads us to a life of unlove, a life of self-promotion, a life of living for us instead of living for God. The other thing that was happening with these false teachers is that they were using the law unlawfully, as we read earlier. So this is the last truth I'll just mention. False teaching puts the emphasis on our works instead of God's work. False teaching puts the emphasis on our works, what we do for God, over God's work, what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we get toward the end of this passage in verses 8 through 11, and what we see is they're not using the law, the Old Testament law, lawfully. They're telling people you have to do this, live this way, do this custom, follow this thing so that God would love you, so that you get this standing. Again, it's not loving at all. It's using the the law to try to build oneself up, and we cannot get to God on our own. It's called legalism, right? And so there's two ditches. There's the ditch of legalism on one side. I'm going to do everything the Bible says so that I can earn God's favor and acceptance. So that's what the Pharisees did. And on the other side, it's I'm going to go outside and away from God's word. I'm going to kind of make up my own thing using some of God's word and follow what I want. But in the middle, it's the same result. Not loving God, not loving others, sending the church in a direction of shipwreck. And so we, the threat to our church, Tri-Cities, the threat to other churches, but the threat to our own heart is to lean into false teaching. And so are we a people of the word? Are we a people who are loving? Are we a people who are avoiding legalism and avoiding changing God's word? Is that happening in us? And the way we combat that is to become a people of the word. So that's the threat. Let's look at our charge Our charge is love. Love that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So this whole passage we're looking at, the focus of it is love. The false teachers have missed it. They've missed God's love. They're not acting out of love. They're acting out of something else. And the danger for us is that we would become a people who are unloving. Not unloving in the sense of, I don't like you, I like me. Unloving in the sense of, we don't love God, we just love us. That's the danger that every church, every Jesus follower runs into. Am I loving God or am I loving me? And he says, the aim of our charge at the end of the day, break the glass. What are we here to do? What are we here to be? Is to love That love flows out of a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. So what do those things mean? So here's some truths about love we see from this text. The first is this. Love begins with and centers on God. Love begins with not me, not my emotions, not what I think. It begins with God. If we don't love God first, and if we don't love God most, we are incapable of showing genuine love to anyone else. Love ends and begins with God. In verse 8, when Paul says to use the law lawfully, the law in Deuteronomy begins by saying this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your strength. These things shall be on your heart. So love that begins with God. Then later on, Jesus himself will affirm this. And they say, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. So love, it begins with God himself. And we are not going to be able to love others well until we love God most. And so just like really practical application. If you want to love your spouse more, if you want to love your church more, if you want to love your kids more, if you want to be a person who loves uh, your, the word more, it begins with loving God most. Set your heart, set your mind, set your focus on loving Him, on knowing Him, on knowing His Word. That transforms everything else. It begins with God. So love, it begins and centers on God. Here's the second one. Love requires that we engage false teaching and false assumptions. Paul tells Timothy to go and to engage these men. To command them to stop teaching. That's not unloving. This is a loving action. And friends, one of the most loving things we can do is to step into a brother or sister's life when we see sin or things that are not in line and say, I love you and something's not adding up. And that's hard, right? This is not being judgmental. This is not being legalistic. This is examining your own heart first. Again, that's why we do the Lord's Supper, to examine our hearts. But saying, I love you enough that I'm willing to step in when I see something that is not in line and say, what's going on here? What's going on here? I told the earlier service, you know, if I walk out of here and you see me in the hallway and I have a brown recluse like on the side of my head, would you please smack me in the head? Like I'm not going to find it loving at first, but I will really love you later on. Like if you see that happening, step in. Or if I see one of my kids out playing in the street, they're probably not going to like me pulling them out of what they're playing with. But I do it because I love them and I see danger and I don't want harm to come for them. So I step in. And part of us loving one another well is being willing to step into each other's lives and say, man, something doesn't line up. Something doesn't look right. Something's not true. It's one of the reasons why we do life groups, so we can speak into each other's lives lovingly. Here's another truth. Love is a decision before it's a feeling. Love is a decision or a choice before it's a feeling. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. The word love is agape. It's the deepest form of love that's there, but it's a decision form of love. It's sacrificial. And so love is not just an emotion I feel that's part of it, But love in its deepest sense, it's a choice. It's to say, I'm choosing to love you. And I'm going to love you sacrificially whether you love me back or not. And I'm going to love you whether I feel love for you or not. Why? Because God first loved me. So love is a decision. It's a decision to fight for the good of someone else. It's a decision to pursue someone else. It's a decision to help someone else see and know God. It's a decision to follow Him. But this is our, our main text, verse 5. And so we see that love flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's talk about these three for just a moment. True love, God-honoring love, the charge that we've been given is to love others out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What's a pure heart? A pure heart is a heart that is loving others that is not being influenced by sin. A pure heart. A heart's not tainted by sin. Listen to some of the things that the Old Testament says and New Testament about a pure heart. 
Psalm 24, 3-4 says this. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Who's going to see God? Who's going to be close to God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You want to see God? You want to know God? You have to have a pure heart. This is David's cry in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, please create a pure heart in me. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Listen to what it says. For they shall see God. Do you want to see God? I want to see God. The pure in heart see God. What about good conscience? Good conscience in Romans 2. Paul talks about our conscience and our conscience is how we think and how we perceive life. And having a good conscience means that the things that we do are out of the right motivation. So there's no false or manipulative motivation behind what we're doing. When I was a little kid, I had siblings. And so sometimes, I'm sure no one else in this room has ever done this, but sometimes if I wanted something that my parents told me I couldn't have, I would get my brother or sister to go do that thing instead of me so that I could get it. I'm sure none of you have ever done that before. Uh, but to avoid doing the wrong thing, I would send them to do the wrong thing on my half, right? Is that a good conscience? No, it's manipulative. It's wrong motivation. It's not out of a pure conscience. So Paul says our love is supposed to flow out of a pure heart. A heart that's been made clean before God. It's supposed to flow out of a good conscience, a pure motivation. But it also flows out of a sincere faith. That love ultimately is motivated and flows out of a heart that understands the gospel. That when we know how we have been loved by God, we respond with that kind of love for others. So I want you to lean in for a moment. This love that you and I, if you're Jesus follower in this room, have been charged to live out, it is impossible for you and for me to do on our own. Right? You can't create a pure heart inside yourself. You can't make your conscience good and clean motivations. You can't make your faith sincere on your own. So we're supposed to avoid false teachers, but we know that within our hearts, that's where we're going to run to. And we're called to love. This is our charge, but we know that on our own, we cannot love other people this way, but this is what we're called to. And so how do we avoid becoming false teachers and how do we pursue this kind of love and live this way? And the good news, this is the third thing, is that there is a hope. And our hope is the glorious gospel of God's love for us. This is our hope. This is our anchor, the gospel. God's love for us through Jesus Christ. I read it in verse 1 at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. We have hope this morning. We can avoid false teachers. We can avoid becoming false teachers. We can live out this charge of love that God's given to us. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. We have hope this morning. This is possible. Not only is it possible, but it's something that God has called us to, and it's good news. 
So here are a couple truths about our hope I want us to consider from this passage. The first one's this, and we'll be finished. The gospel is God's work on our behalf, not our work to earn God's love. The gospel is God's work on our behalf, not our work to earn God's love. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then, this is really interesting in the next few verses. It says, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just. The law is not for good people. The law is not for just people. The law is for the lawless. Who in this room are the lawless people? Us. Everyone walks in before Jesus Christ. Lawless. Sinners disobedience. So the law was given to point us to God, not to help us earn favor from God. That's, that's why it was given to us. And once we become a part of God's children, the law is no longer what leads us to God. The law just helps us to obey and follow Him. And then this list that He gives, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane. What is this list? This list is, a part, is the overflow and outflowing of the Ten Commandments. So the first few things align with the first half of the Ten Commandments, the other with the other. If you have a Bible, look at this. It's pretty cool to think about. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience. Who's that? Love the Lord your God first. For the ungodly and sinners, have no other idols before me. For the unholy and profane, unholy, those who don't keep the Sabbath, profane, those who swear and take the name of the Lord their God in vain, those who strike their fathers and mothers, those are the people who don't honor their fathers and mothers, for murderers, do not kill, the sexually immoral men, those who practice homosexuality, thou shalt not commit adultery, enslavers, kidnappers, thou shalt not steal, liars, perjurers, thou shalt not lie, or whatever else. So Paul's taking the Ten Commandments, showing how sins against God flow out of the Ten Commandments. He's saying the law was given, the Ten Commandments were given for those of us who commit these crimes to see our need for God. Not to help us earn favor from God. So hang with me, here's here's the point. The solution for lawbreakers, is the gospel. When we could not save ourselves, that God sent His Son to come and rescue us, when we did nothing to deserve it. Absolutely nothing. And so the reason we can love is because God has first loved us. For most of you in this room, I'm making an assumption, you're probably Tennessee fans. And so there were a lot of emotions that went through your heart and through your mind on Thursday night as you're watching the kickoff game and everything happening and the ups and downs and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of that game, when the buzzer went off and Tennessee wins the football game, I guarantee that most of you who are watching that game probably said the same thing. That's like, and that's this, we won. We won, we won, we won, right? Excited, pumped. But here's the truth. Did you actually win anything on your own on Thursday night? No. We, we cheer for our team. We love our team. But at the end of, our, end of the thing, you didn't play the football game. I didn't play the football game. We didn't throw. You might say, well, I would have called a different player. I would have put a different person in. You know, we all do that, right? But we get a victory that we played no part in, right? 
because we're fans, we're part of the team. So we celebrate the victory even though we did absolutely nothing to cause it to happen. In such a greater sense, this is what happens in the gospel. We do absolutely nothing to earn God's favor. We're broken sinners in need of God, in need of grace. And God steps into our life through Jesus Christ, becoming man, one of us. He dies on the cross in our place. His body's broken for us. His blood is shed on our behalf. And any who place their faith in him can be saved. And just like he rose again from the dead, you can have new life in him. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's good news. And so we can love from a pure heart. Why? Because God takes our sin away. We can love out of a good conscience. Why? Because God gives us a new mind. Spirit-filled mind. And we can love out of the sincere faith. Why? Because we respond to what God, the love that God has shown us through the gospel. Listen to what John says. He says it this way. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So you cannot love this way unless God does this love in you. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, or it was revealed among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought to love one another. This is the love. This is it. The aim of our charge is love. This is what it looks like. Us understanding God's love, his love on display for us through Jesus Christ. And then we responding out of that love, love others. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Isn't it beautiful? The gospel, it's our hope, it's the anchor. It's what allows us to love others. It's what allows us to love God with all of our heart. It's what keeps us from swerving this false teaching and false doctrine and moving astray. So brothers and sisters, may we be a people who love. A church that does not love God most and others more is a church without love. In summary, a church that does not love God most and love others more is a church without love. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a people who love God most. We love others more. That we love the word deeply. That there would be no false teaching or false assumptions within us. What would your home look like? What would your family look like? What would your marriage look like? What would our community look like if we loved this way? If the love of God fueled by the gospel was on display in us this way, it would change everything. I ask you just to bow your heads for a moment and just close your eyes. And as we respond this morning, we're going to respond through the table. But here's what I want to ask. And this is what I want you to consider and just kind of pray through in your mind. We get to Revelation chapter 3. Jesus, speaking through the Apostle John, the letter to the churches. 
and he comes to the church at Ephesus. Here's what I want you to think about. The church that Paul helped start, the church that Timothy is now at, where he's saying the aim of our charge is love. He starts talking about the seven churches. He gets to the church at Ephesus. And you know what he says about that church? You have all these good things about you, but you have lost your first love. What will we be known for 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What will our kids remember us for? Will the love of Christ be on display through you and through me? Or will we be known as the people who've lost their first love? Are you here this morning as a Jesus follower? Maybe you've lost your first love. Maybe you've traded loves for lesser loves. And those loves, whether it's your job or career, your kids, whatever that is, it's killing you on the inside because it's not meeting the needs of your heart. It's because you've lost your love. Or maybe this morning the, the danger is to slip into false teaching and false belief and false assumptions and things that aren't in line with God's word and they circumvent our love. Maybe this morning your love is for Jesus and you are pursuing Him. And you just, your next step might be that there's someone in your life who their life's out of bounds with the gospel that you need to speak into and say, Brother, sister, this does not line up, this does not add up, and I love you enough that I'm going to speak into your life and say that. Maybe you're here and you've never experienced the saving love and grace of Jesus Christ. And this morning you can. A repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus. And I would love to talk to you more about what that means or someone else who's here. So this morning we respond to the love of God. Father, I thank you for this passage and this text. Lord, I pray that we would be a church who's known for our love, our love for you and our love for others that's fueled by the gospel. And we thank you for Jesus Christ and his death in our place. As we celebrate that now, we pray that you would be glorified. In your name I pray.